Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 54. This is an unusual episode because we are not live streaming. We're pre-recording this. Um, this is going to be air uh, August 18th, which is Megan's birthday, so it felt like a good time to take off. Um, and we, I wanted to rebroadcast or broadcast for the first time this interview from Rattle number 68 with Paul E. Nelson. We did it over Skype on March 2nd. Um, it was right at the beginning of the coronavirus uh, lockdowns and things like that, so I couldn't travel up to Seattle to, to meet Paul, um, who is the founder of the uh, August Postcard Poetry Project and so much more. Um, so we did it over Skype, and this might be the new format that we do from now on for our print interviews. We might do it over Skype, um, and then we have the video, which we can share later. And so um, I just did an interview a few months ago last month with Jan Beatty, who is the poet from our fall issue. We're doing the same thing with that. Um, so that's what's coming up. I'm going to play the interview in just a little bit, but um, I wanted to share some of Paul's poems too. So um, so we have Paul here on the line once again, and um, we'll get to him in just a minute. He'll read a poem, then we'll, we'll jump to the interview, then he'll read some more poems at the end of the show. Now, um, first I should say, though, that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995, and just do it for the love of poetry. or are unaffiliated with any other organization, and um, we just love what we do, so we do it. If you love what we do, please do click the like button and share and subscribe, no matter which venue you're watching this on. If it's Facebook, if it's YouTube, if it's iTunes, leave a review, whatever you can do, click something. Like take a second now to click something because that tells all the machines that you like uh, what you see. Now, um, as I mentioned, our guest today is Paul E. Nelson from a, with a pre-recorded interview. Um, Paul is the um, featured poet in our summer issue, which you can see on the screen here. And um, the tribute was to postcard poems. And um, Paul is one of the founders of the, or the founder of the August Postcard Poetry Project. But let's read his bio here really quick from the issue. Uh, Paulie Nelson is the founder of the Splab Seattle Poetics Lab and the Cascadia Poetry Festival. Since 1993, Splab has produced hundreds of poetry events and 600 hours of interview programming with legendary poets and whole six systems activists, including Allen Ginsberg, Michael McClure, Joan Kiger, and many others. Paul's books include American Prophets, Interviews from 1994 to 2012, American Sentences, A Time Before Slaughter, and Organic in Cascadia, A Sequence of Energies. Um, he has worked translated into Spanish, Chinese, and Portuguese, and writes an American sentence every day. Winner of the 2014 Robin Blazer Award from the Capilano, Capilano Review, he is engaged in a 20-year bioregional cultural investigation of Cascadia and lives in uh, Rainier Beach in the Cascadia bioregion Cedar River watershed. You can find much more, so much. He's got so many essays and articles online at paulenelson.com. That's uh, spelled just like it sounds, P-A-U-L-E-N-E-L-S-O-N. And you'll hear more about all this in the great interview. It was one of my favorite interviews that we've done um, just so many interesting topics that we covered. It was very rangy and fun. Um, but here is now to share some poetry. Um, Paul E. Nelson. Hey, Paul, how are you doing today? Tim, great. I'm grateful to be part of this again and uh, grateful it's summertime and uh, grateful to share my work. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely my pleasure. Um, do you want to start out? Um, I think what we'll do, as we mentioned, is we'll um, read one poem, then we'll put the interview in, and then we'll go back to a few other poems before we close out. Do you want to start with um, 
Frida one. Frida one and two. And two. Yeah. Okay. Frida smiles and winks at the camera. Frida, after surrealism, after two abortions, after 1925 streetcar accident and iconic unibrow Aragin sees as blackbird wings, I think, after Diego and machismo in black, yellow, red, tan dress, I am not sick, she says, shot by her lover in color, never wincing, as far as I can see, conditioning an image eternal for sainthood. I am not sick. 35 operations, two abortions, surrounded by skulls, pentadine, morphine, not sick, says she, broken. Two, Frida, let your hair down. Frida, don't look at me like that. Frida, leave Diego. Do not walk. Bolt. Frida, won't you steal the masculine hat of the accident you called Diego and bury it behind Casa Azul? Frida, in living color. Frida festooned in Mexican reds and blacks and tans, golds, yellows, y rosados y blanco rosas. Frida, why was surrealism a Mexican breakfast while the feet of the wounded table bleed and you paint tendrils on your 1940 image and only the skull smiles? Frida, who let the spider monkey loose to carry on and live carnal dreams alongside deer, turtle doves, parrots, una familia sustituta con el elefante y la paloma. Diego, ¿y tú? Dime, Frida, ¿de qué color es la flor en que tus cenizas esparcidas en la selva se convirtieron? Frida, tell me, what is the color of the flower your jungle scattered ashes became? Excellent. Thanks so much, Paul. That was a uh, great introduction to Paul's poetry, which you'll hear more about in just a second um, as we go to the interview. Hope you enjoy. Um, so, so to start out, I'd like to hear sort of your personal story, and then we'll move into poetry in more depth. But, um, but how did you get into uh, being a poet? And, um, you know, because I don't really know. I think you started out in radio, if I, if I picked that up right. Um, yeah. But you really dedicate so much of your life to poetry now. Um, how did you end up in this position? Well, I grew up in Chicago, and I was a radio guy for 26 years, and I moved to Seattle in 1988 for a radio job. Um, growing up in Chicago, I found myself attracted to progressive FM radio, uh, WXRT, which is still on the air, 93.1. And uh, they had such a wide variety of music that it created a very um, large aesthetic bandwidth in music. For example, in the mid to late 70s, you would hear maybe in, a, in the same set of music, Led Zeppelin, Bach, the Ramones, and Weather Report, for instance, and maybe in the next set, some comedy. And then uh, probably public service announcements or an interview on public affairs and um, lots of other uh, very kind of outside stuff. So that really kind of shaped me. And then when I started doing um, interviews, specifically in radio circa 1990, 1990 um, I was drawn to whole systems approaches and uh, people people addressing thing, issues in the community from a holistic or whole systems perspective, and then started interviewing poets and started getting interested in writing it and uh, interviewed Allen Ginsberg and then Michael McClure. And those two interviews, more than anything else, really honed my interest in not only a poetry 
but the poetry of uh, North American open form tradition, which led to McClure's uh, tutelage to uh, get into projective verse, which led to uh, seriality and other stances on um, spontaneous composition, including Denise Levertov and Robert Duncan's organic poetry and Robin Blazer talking about Jack Spicer's The Practice of Outside. And, um, you know, it just keeps getting refined uh, the more I go on. Each day you like to think it's you're a little closer to what will bring you joy and individuation and good health and happiness and all those nice mm-hmm. things. So so when you first interviewed um, Allen Ginsberg and uh, McClure, um for the radio show were you not into writing poetry then is that your was that your first introduction or was it something you did like when you were younger too well when i was really really young uh i just wrote a rhymy poem in kindergarten for the for the uh school newspaper and they published it i'm like this rhyming stuff is easy (laughs) you know and uh and then i didn't really do anything until uh the 90s i my daughter rebecca who's a freelance journalist lives in Brooklyn and just started teaching uh, journalism at Columbia University, um, I would read her bedtime stories. And I got sick of uh, The Very Hungry Caterpillar and all those typical kids' books. And so started reading her poems and started reading her, uh, you know, regular novels like uh, The Strange Life of, uh, what is it, The Strange Life of Ivan Osakin and other books like mm-hmm. that. So esoteric stuff and and then poems and then I started my hand in about 94 in writing, and that was the year I interviewed Ginsburg, and uh, and uh, then the following year interviewing McClure. And I think that reading McClure's three poems and the poem Dolphin Skull and learning about him, meeting him, he, he toured uh, Seattle because I think he was playing with Ray Manzarek um, locally, mm-hmm. uh, the, the former Doors keyboardist, and uh, have a lifelong friendship with Michael, wrote the introduction to a couple of his books, and uh, and really have gotten to know uh, his stance on poem making, mm-hmm. which uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Is that is that is it him who does um, organic poetry? Is that his? No, um, he says he writes in projective verse, projective which verse, is okay. the yeah uh, the Charles Olson essay from 1950. Um, organic uh, was a word that uh, or a phrase that his teacher, one of his teachers, used. Robert Duncan mm-hmm. uh, McClure moved to San Francisco wanting to be a painter. And ended up uh, bumping into Duncan and taking a class from him and changing from painting to poetry. And then Duncan and Levertov in their correspondence in the 50s, 60s, and into the middle 70s, um, they talked about what they saw as organic poetry. And they differentiated it from conventional poetry, mm-hmm. which would have been uh, you know, the new formalists, and free verse poetry. He, uh, Duncan said that Allen Ginsberg his poem Howl is a free verse poem. So in other words, you know pretty much what, what you're going to say, but you're not sure how you're going to say it. And, uh, and that is what he would call free verse. And then he differentiated organic um, by thinking or, or articulating that you sit down to write a poem, maybe you know where it starts, but you have no idea where it ends. Mm-hmm. And uh, the poem informs you as it goes along so it's it's a noetic mm-hmm. uh, practice yeah yeah I, I find a lot of just personal resonance with that concept too do, do you know how far back that traces that's one of the things i've always wondered about that sense of of poetry or just art in general being transformative rather than um you know capturing something that you already know um is, is that a newer concept or 
it, within art itself, I know, you know, it, it used to exist um, within, um, you know, shamanic traditions and all that kind of stuff. But for to be, you know, within art, do you know where that starts? Does it start in that era? Well, no. I, I, well, each era has, I think, its own take on it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rilke wrote uh, the Duino Elegies and a couple of blasts and uh, Sonus to Orpheus. Uh, so I have a whole blog post called Writing or Rewriting, and it goes into the different takes. You know, uh, revision is really a 20th century uh, notion, uh, and many people theorize that the addition of the typewriter mm-hmm. uh, allowed for easier revision. But before that, uh, there wasn't much in the way of revision. And um, I think that uh, Levertov's comment about if if you have to really work at revising a poem, it probably didn't incubate long enough. Mm-hmm. But But in terms of its roots in the 20th century, I, there was an art, somebody who was likening this notion to painting between open and closed. Um, Heinrich Wolflin, I believe, is was the person's name in the early 20th century. But I think it is a shamanic thing. I think you go out uh, and you you get, you know, I mean, in Native American tradition, you do a vision quest and you're given a song. Um, I think that goes to any culture. And I think any human being alive today has roots in the indigenous because it's where we all came from, although some uh, some of us are much closer to the indigenous than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so can you just describe a little bit? So you, you consider yourself an adherent of organic poetry, right? Is that how you des- describe what you what you do? Because I, I know there's a whole, on your website, there's a whole section of essays on organic poetry. So I, I'm assuming that's how, how you consider yourself. Um, can you just explain sort of in a little more detail what that, that means? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I did my grad work on organic poetry, and I got that lifted directly from the letters of uh, Robert Duncan and Denise Levertov. Mm-hmm. Levertov lived the last eight or nine years of her life right uh, down the street oh, did she? up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she lived in Seattle. Moved to Seattle, I think, uh, pretty much because she was friends with Sam Hamill, and uh, and he connected her, uh, her uh, to a lot of the poets here. And she wanted to live in a town that had decent public transportation because she never drove and we put a little plaque on the house that she used to live in. I, I like to, SPLAB, my nonprofit organization, I like to think of it as a, a high-class tagging. Um, but organic, you know, you sit down to write a poem and, uh, you know, you have some idea where it's starting, but you have no idea where it's ending. And you learn how to track the language. I think the language is more intelligent than all of us. It was here long before us and has a tremendous field of energy that if we can tap into and trust uh, whether or not we quote unquote understand what the poem means, um, Sam Hamill, uh, another one of my mentors, used to say, "If the poem is not surprising you, how's it going to surprise anybody?" <laughs> so, so I, I've been more attracted to that open stance. I think it's a lot like uh, taking a saxophone solo in in an, in a bebop tune. You know, I mean, you know, kind of where you're starting. You're starting with a melody, unless you get into free jazz, and that's a whole other thing, which I find also attractive and open. Um, but you start off with a melody and then you kind of vamp from there and then you eventually come back to the melody and you're out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's, uh, maybe at the core of what we'd call bebop and in writing, you know, like for example, the postcard fest, Popo, we we're calling it now. Uh, you start out with a person you're writing to, and then maybe the scene of looking out the window here on Lake Washington, maybe, uh, eagles are, uh, you know, being, warded off by osprey and that leads to a poem or 
or or that happens in the middle of your poem. But you know, with a postcard poem, they're they're very short. I mean, you got the size of a postcard unless you buy big ones <laughs> or make big ones. So you know, you have little time to kind of get to and get out. It's about the length of a sonnet. So um, the postcard fest is a really interesting practice in learning how to trust your gut and how to tap into um, energies greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. Um- do you want to start to just explain, um, you know, how the Postcard Fest came to be? Uh, it, how many years ago did you start it, and where did the idea come from, and um, how does it work, just so people understand, if they're not familiar with it? Yeah, you um, you register and you get on a list, and you get a you get a list of thirty two names and addresses, including your own, and if you register um, now or before. The 4th of July, you'll get your list on the 4th of July. And then um, there's two weeks where the fest is going on and registration's still open. Anyway, you get a list of 32 people and you have to the end of August to write an original card on an uh, original poem on a postcard to all the people on your list. So um, we had a book, uh, an anthology called The 56 Days of August. So uh, that was when you got your list on the 4th. No, you registered on the 4th, got your list on the 5th. And you started sending poems out on the 6th. So that gives you 56 days. That's how we figured it out. And um, the idea is that you're not going to split up, you know, slice up a poem that you've already written and pasted on and sent it out. But you're going to actually write it onto the card in the moment. And it's going to have something of the here and now. Mm-hmm. Or, as, or as Jimmy Buffett said, the weather is here. I wish you were beautiful. <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. So and, and um, you know, it uh, it's really it started in 2007. Uh Lana Ayers, who runs Concrete Wolf Press in uh, coastal Oregon, I, I told her, you know, I want to do some kind of August annual poetry uh, annual uh, poetry festival that involves postcards. And she said, I'll help. Mm-hmm. And she really helped to edit and articulate what I was just kind of offhand telling her. And that created the rules that we pretty much, the rules, the guidelines that we pretty much stick to and have entering now our 14th year. So it's been going on for 13 years. We had 424 people in, I think, five different continents. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a thriving Facebook group uh, and really a community that has sprung up around this. A lot of people continue to send out postcards year-round. There are fests that have branched off from it. One's a peace postcard fest that happens every February. And uh, one year there was a 5252. So you were going to write uh, a postcard a week until the next postcard fest hmm. started. So um, so that's a little bit about it. And, it. and it helps with spontaneous composition. It allows for seriality because, you know, you're writing within a span of 56 days. So there are likely themes that are going to come up again and again. And, of course, you're writing in the summer, and that's a different kind of vibe. There's a summer poem. It's different from the kind of poem that you might write looking out in – uh, the mountains of Southern California and seeing snow in the back. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, where did the idea of uh, of postcards themselves come from? Like you mentioned, you had that idea for Lana, but um, where did you know what made you think of postcards? Do you remember? Well, it was completely intuitive. Um, the notion that um, you can get away from the computer and write something down and stick it in the mail and mm-hmm. hope it gets there. Uh, was, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I've always been fascinated by postcards. I've, I collected a bunch. I could show you the drawer just filled with them. I got 300 or 400 postcards sitting there waiting. 
some antique postcards, and uh, and now I'm making my own. So they're kind of they're kind of stuck there, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so there's just something about it. And you know, as since be, between 2007, when did the World Wide Web come up? 1994. So this was just seven years, really, into the mm-hmm. web. And now we look at our lives. Uh, it's hard to imagine them, uh, our lives without the World Wide Web. So. The, the notion of postcards and writing it down and putting a stamp. I was going to say licking a stamp, but they, <laughs> yeah, they, you don't have to lick them anymore. Now, so yeah. <laughs> you glue it on it and you address it and, uh, you know, you send it out there and hope it gets there. So it's it's a whole different kind of vibe mm-hmm. than you, you hit send and somebody in Czechoslovakia has, you know, or the Czech Republic has, has the message that you sent. Yeah, there's something just, I don't know, it sort of distills um, everything that I appreciate um, with poetry into one sort of act, I think the postcard poem because it's it's um, my friend Eric Campbell has his, um, his book of poems, um, arguments for stillness, um, about the need for 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 slowing life down and contemplating and living in the moment, and and there's something about the slow process of that, the, the combination of slow and quick. It it sort of slows what needs to be slowed and quickens what needs to be quickened, you know, and um, so it's a really great great concept. And I know a lot of people had fun just judging by the. Um, I think we had, if I remember right, 600 uh, people submitted postcard poems, and um, everybody just said, especially the people who participated in your contest in particular, they really enjoyed um, just the process of it and the way that it, it dissects itself out of our regular lives, you know? Um, and that's sort of something that people really need these days, I think. Well, and, and, you know, hence August being the perfect month for that, because, you know, were we to ever have a real just society, August would be a month that we'd pretty much be on vacation. I mean, firefighters and, and, and essential workers would have to be there. But for those of us who can get away or who can carve out that time, August is just perfect because mm-hmm. it's the laziest month of the year. And uh, what happens is poetry uh, gets higher in the stack of things to do in your consciousness. So rather than whatever else uh, might be there, poetry gets close to the top, not only because you're writing, not only because you, your awareness, your perception is heightened because you're looking for things to write about, but then you're getting cards in the mail. And it's like, wow, look at this. You know, the postcard come, the, the, the letter carrier comes and says, hey, this one's a pretty good one. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of fun that, you know, and, and the notion of putting poetry higher up in your consciousness is really part of what makes the fest work. And the fact, the fact that it happens in August mm-hmm. when we're most likely to be able to do that is mm-hmm. also very helpful. Yeah. I think, I always think of poetry as a kind of secular religion and a kind of a religious practice to actually meditate and reflect on life for a little bit. Um, one of the things that you do is that American sentences, um, you have a book called American Sentences, and you've been writing an American sentence um, every. Do you still do that? I assume after the book came out, right? So it's about like sixteen or seventeen years now. Um, twenty. Twenty years. Okay, so twenty years you've been writing an American sentence every day, um, without fail. I assume, right? Every single day. Yeah, I fill up a lot of these uh, little notebooks. Um, this is the one I'm working with now. So I I write them and I circle them mm-hmm. and date them and. I haven't harvested last year's, and I started at the beginning of uh, 2001, January 1st, 2001, to get a head start on a splab workshop on short forms that Ginsburg espoused, uh, Allen Ginsburg, for our Allen Ginsburg Memorial Poetry Marathon. Ann Waldman and Andrew Schelling were the, were the facilitators mm-hmm. of that. And then I didn't 
I didn't get to take the workshop because I had to work at the NPR station <laughs> that day. But I didn't stop and got the book out, as you alluded to, the book American Sentences. And uh, I, uh, yeah, I write one every day. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's gotten into a thing where I pretty much do it for myself. There may be short journal entries or other things that other people wouldn't get. I mean, anytime you don't, if you know the background of a poem, you're going to get more out of it. I have a seven-year-old daughter, and she said yesterday, the day before, and I wrote it down yesterday, when Bhakti and I are, um, wait, what does it say? When Bhakti and I are dead, our adjacent tombstones will say they loved tacos. <laughs> Why a seven-year-old would think that's an appropriate epitaph? <laughs> I don't know, but you know, it's something like I'm going to write that down, mm-hmm. and uh, who knows if it's uh, it's you know it's not up there on the level of Basho or Isa, mm-hmm. but it's a little slice into my life, and I think that's what these things do. It's like Ginsburg describing his photography; his photographs captured the shadow of the moment, mm-hmm. and I think the best short poems uh, in this. Uh, form do that for me. Yeah, I love that phrase, the shadow of the moment. I haven't, I haven't heard it put that way, but yeah, that's that's exactly it. Do you find that it it enhances your experience of your own life? Uh, it seems like it would. Like if you're always looking for something to appreciate or looking for something to notice, that must like really fundamentally change your neurological processes as you go out th- throughout the day, right? It heightens your perception. You find that um, a lot of these lines end up. In the longer poems, right now I've been writing sonnets as one of the one of the things I'm doing now, prose sonnets. So um, these images kind of stick with you, and then they mark um, they mark things in your consciousness. Like um, you know, I remember the person I was married to and the situation of a dirty refrigerator and how it took from Thanksgiving till January 9th, I think it was. And uh, the American sentence goes something like, uh, would her Thanksgiving stuffing been this hard to flush had we eaten it? (laughs) 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 So I remember it was, you know, frustration of a partner who, you know, was not interested in A, eating the leftovers or B, cleaning them up. And so there's a little bit of charge to it. And the charge, I think, lent itself well to poetry. That person, the mother of my youngest child, at first, she's like, you know, don't be bringing that up. And then I would read it in public, and people would just break out laughing at that. <laughs> so she's like, read the Thanksgiving one. <laughs> yeah, that's, a fu- that's funny. Do you want to describe, um, just in case um, readers don't know, um, the, what the American sentence is? And, and I really didn't know all the details about it. I knew it was a form Ginsburg made sort of represent the American haiku. But that's sort of all yeah. I knew. So do you want to explain what the American sentence is? Yeah, it's a 17-syllable poem. Um, that is just one line, although some of Ginsburg's are like three lines, um, but they're basically one sentence, 17 syllables, and they're designed to capture the shadow of the moment. So it's an Americanization of haiku, but without the cutting word, without the seasonal reference necessarily. I date all mine. I never title them, but the date sometimes gives you some idea whether there's a historical thing happening or what time of year. And uh, so that acts as a sort of seasonal kind of thing. Um, so basically, you, there are little bits of perception. Sometimes there's a gap. Sometimes the gap is, you know, like with any haiku, if the gap is too large, you don't get it. And if the gap is too small, then it's not much of a poem. So 
Uh, a popular one from the early days was uh, next to condom dispenser is written, this is the worst gum ever. <laughs> <laughs> Always a hit, no matter if it's language poets or slam poets or people at the senior center. If I read that one, it's guaranteed to make people smile or get a laugh. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, it's imagistic. Um, hopefully there's some kind of tension in there contrasting two different things or, uh, or any number of, you know, typical sorts of poetry tropes that have to be boiled down or scaled down into 17 syllables. And, you know, I get to the point where if it's 18 and it's good enough and I can't edit it, I don't bother. So I, I don't even say 17 syllables anymore. Although Ginsburg, when I interviewed um, Andrew Shelley and Ann Waldman about the form, they said that he felt that there was something magical about 17 syllables and that the beginning of the Heart Sutra, gate, gate, para, gate, para, sam, gate, bodhisvaha, that itself is 17 mm -hmm. syllables. So he thought there was something magical about that. And, you know, uh, I, I know some guy in Canada tried for a while to do Canadian sentences and make them 12 syllables. But uh, <laughs> when I say American, I, I mean, you know, the hemisphere and not necessarily U.S. American, mm -hmm. as George Bowring likes to call this country. Um, one of the things that's sort of interesting, and in, 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 um, you brought it up a little bit, is um, the sense of, of the, the wall between like what's public and meant to be read and what's private and meant to be for yourself. And so one of the things I always wonder about um, with when it comes to something like organic poetry and that concept is how you figure out like what is worth sharing and what is you know and, and what has value to other people to strangers who don't know you to don't know the background of the of the American sentence you just wrote um, how much of writing is for yourself and how much is for an audience and do you make that distinction at all do you just um, filter out what would work for an audience versus what don't how do you how do you play with that I don't know that I've figured that out. <laughs> I mean, you, you read, you go to a, um, a certain gig and you think you maybe you have a set list or something and thinks that's going to work. And sometimes it does. And sometimes you say, no, this ain't going to work. I want to change it up um, for various reasons. And sometimes those reasons work and sometimes they don't. So sometimes you make bad calls in the moment. Um, I, I err on the side of, uh, um, putting the stuff in there and being open. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm at my best when I can be free to be open and, and totally myself. Mm -hmm. And, and when, uh, when it's not, when I sense that the environment isn't open and I can't be free to be myself, you know, um, chances are, I don't want to be there. <laughs> so, um, it's a very difficult thing to figure out what an audience is going to appreciate. And, uh, you know, in terms of a poetic gesture, uh, I put just about everything in the poems. And so then what do I decide to read in public? Recently, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so I had a biopsy. And some of the side effects of the, bi of the biopsy are, uh, are difficult to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm running in my head whether I should read this, uh, this prose sonnet that has a combination of some of the effects of the biopsy with a revelation mm -hmm. that I have prostate cancer uh, with an audience that um, are, w which is kind of conventional, kind of a little bit on the closed side. And do I read uh, something that, uh, you know, 
basically exposes that there is blood coming out of the tip of my penis. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know if I read that in public, but it's such a compelling poem. It's a combination of listening to Mike Garson, his tribute to Thelonious Monk and having this experience, which, uh, you know, it kind of creeped me out, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and I, and I, I can imagine it would creep out others and there's very direct language. Uh, it's certainly a, what do they say? NC 17, uh -huh. <laughs> something like that. Uh -huh. It's certainly, it's certainly a, uh, you know, I would have to do some kind of trigger warning, I think, which I never do mm -hmm. to say, Hey, there's some graphic language in this poem. So, um, but on the other hand, those I've read it to or shown it to, they're like, oh, my God, what, a, what an amazing poem. Kent Johnson said, this is strange and brave. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great blurb, you know, strange and brave. You'd want you that. Would, on the back you of would, you would, yeah. <laughs> what I was thinking was, all the long lines, so there's sort of a risk that people – you know, just when you talk about the, the process of organic poetry, there's a risk, especially for, for more novice poets who are, you know, just starting out maybe, to use that as an excuse to be included and not share details that under, people will understand. Like you, you mentioned with your, the poem um, with your daughter and, and that background little story you said, um, you know, you, you get more out of it if you know the background, right? And so it, it, it can really easily become an excuse not to you know, worry about giving the, the giving a reader enough information to understand the poem and, and keeping a distance. Uh, it, it sounds to me like you, you know, that's not a problem with you specifically because you're, you're as open as possible and you're, you're seeking and exploring as you write. But I think, um, you know, there, there's a danger of writing that kind of stuff that, that makes no sense because it actually doesn't, isn't there? Well, well, yeah. I mean, uh, Michael McClure liked to quote Goethe said that, uh, um, poetry should be incomprehensible and incommensurable. <laughs> and, and yet Goethe's there's, has a lot of work that's very accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm drawn to poets like Nate Mackey and Brenda Hillman and Charles Olson and Wanda Coleman and Michael McClure and, uh, and others who, um, who I don't think, I don't think they tried to dumb it down. I think they tried their, interest wasn't so much in going over but how far down their own throat could they mm -hmm. get and, and um you know with these poets um it, they're difficult at first to begin to understand but once you've read enough of their work um you know it's kind of like you got to spend some time on mm -hmm. it this is not something that you can just like order a pizza to the door you know and start <laughs> eating you know it's not going to be fast food poetry. It's going to be something that takes a little work. But once you do that work, mm -hmm. I think there's a higher payoff. And Mackey likes to call his work um, hyper-specific. Mm -hmm. So not just not just the luminous details, but the hyper-specific luminous details. Um, Ginsburg, when he was on my show, and it's in the uh, book of interviews, American Prophets, he was uh, paraphrasing Blake. But his paraphrase, I think, is more powerful than Blake's original quote. And Ginsburg said that um, he said uh, he was talking about uh, abstractions and generalizations are the plea of the hypocrite, knave, and scoundrel. <laughs> uh -huh. So when we write, we often hide behind cliches or abstractions or generalizations when what we want to say is whatever the bloody truth of it is and we feel like I can't do that or it won't go over or I'll be censored or I won't be published in whatever 
publications. So, um, you know, I err towards using poetry as a noetic and soul building practice. And I think that audience considerations are, are secondary mm-hmm. to that uh, experience. I know that McClure loves to quote the abstract expressionist Clifford Still. And, you know, I've, I've quoted him. Uh, I've used the same quote and people hear that and they get livid when you explain it to him. But Clifford Still, who has a whole museum with work dedicated to his art in Denver, the city of Denver built it specifically for Clifford Still's work, as stated in uh, Clifford Still's um, obitu- or his, uh, his will. And um, he said that demands for communication are presumptuous and irrelevant. Hmm. And it's like, <laughs> wow. And, and look at him. How many artists can we say they have their own museum in a major city? Very few. So uh, Clifford Still's work is uh, living on, and, and I think in part because he was interested in going as deep as he could mm-hmm. into that gesture as an artist. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that the problem, though, comes comes along when it's just it's so easy to deceive yourself over when you're actually going deep versus when you're sort of just pretending. And I think there's sort of a, a problem within the literary world where we publish too many books. Um, and there's this whole, whole sense of publication. You know, there's a whole industry around it now. Um, and, you know, the sort of capitalist forces kick in and poetry ends up being a career rather than that kind of noetic personal experience. Um, but for me, like if I remember um, kind of early on, um, I don't know if you're an Ashbury fan, but I could never get into Ashbury. And I decided I read the tennis court oath over and over again until it's sort of something happened. And then I was like, holy shit, like that, that book is amazing. <laughs> and it took about reading it like 10 times through to understand what was going on there and why it really was amazing. Uh, but there are so many books that are published um, that you sort of have to have faith that the poet really did go that deep. Um, and, you know, to, to justify 10 readings, I think. Um, I don't know. It's just an interesting interesting situation we're in what do you think about about poem poetry the sort of sort of the business of poetry um you know you run a nonprofit um as much as you don't want to i mean you have to deal with with sort of balancing budgets and 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 making things sort of commercially viable even if it's not viable um you know economically uh what do you think about that Well, Splab stayed in business for 26 years because I haven't gotten a salary for most of that time. Mm-hmm. So that's a deal breaker for 98% of the people going. And uh, Splab had a different way of doing things. And we've evolved into you know, being able to do a lot with a little bit of money. And um, I really like the notion of the undercommons, which is a concept out of Stefano Harney and Fred Moten. They had a book called The Undercommons Fugitive Planning in Black Study. And as uh, Fred Moten, as a black man in this country with, uh, you know, ancestors who were fugitives in one way or another, um, this metaphor for people who are fugitives from the colonialism inherent in a capitalist system like ours um, is a really interesting take. And he and they in this book, Harney and Moten, talk about the prophetic organization and that's an organization that stands outside the intercom outside the the general sort of mainstream culture the undercommons they theorize is this way of studying that we do in 
the nurse's smoking lounge mm. at the hospital or in the barber shop or at the bar or wherever where um, information exchange as valuable oftentimes as something you'll get in a university um, kind of is outside the realm of the university, which used to be that place where we could get that kind of information, but now has addled by capitalism or neoliberalism has turned into a place where people get professionalized mm -hmm. and learn how to be better insurance brokers or, you know, any number of things in this capitalist economy that are really soul-sucking jobs. And so the undercommons is this part of life that is outside the mainstream and yet very valuable concepts, ones that saves people, save people's lives are uh, are debated and and theorized and refined and so they don't really go into detail on what the prophetic organization is mm -hmm. but when i was reading it i'm like that's blab they're talking about splab <laughs> uh -huh. and so and so we you know we'd love to have 20,000 people a year doing our postcard fest and that would provide a very good budget for us and allow me to pay off my student loan debt, my credit card debt, if Bernie doesn't get in. <laughs> and, and um, you know, we do the best we can with the grant situation. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter, Peter Berg, who was the guy who invented bioregionalism, by and large, he called these grants um, dog biscuit grants. Like, <laughs> here's a thousand, you know. Uh -huh. And, you know, we have to live off those, and we're grateful when we get them, but it would be a lot nicer if there were another zero on the end of mm -hmm. it, you know. And that's the way it goes. Can, can you tell a story about how Splab started? Yes. When I, um, in the middle of my radio career, I started in 1980 professionally in Chicago and then moved around the country and then moved to Seattle in 1988. And the radio station I was working for had a management change, uh, ownership change, and they wanted me to start doing public affairs programming. And I said, well, let me blow that off for a couple of weeks. And they're like, no, you have to have a show Next week, I'm like, what? I got to interview people? I got to do research? He said, all right, we'll give one week, and then that show has to air. These public affairs shows, it ran 6 o'clock Sunday morning, 7 o'clock Sunday morning, really bad times as part of the requirements to maintain mm. a license with the Federal Communications Commission. So I started doing these interviews, and I loved it. I loved talking with people. I loved doing the research. I loved engaging with them as, as we are here. And then um, – I left that radio station and got picked up by a station uh, across the street. Uh, and uh, they said, you know, we know we would like for you to do our public affairs. And we know you can't live off this small amount each each year. But, you know, if, if you do it for us, we it's OK if you do it for other stations. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can do it for six or seven stations and make a living. So I started doing it. And it took me from April, the beginning of April to the end of the year to realize I could start a nonprofit and get some of those grants from many of the foundations who were funding programming on NPR, which was easier said than done. And so we started the organization, and a couple of years in, we started the Splab Project, which was a space for poetry. At the time, it stood for Spoken Word Laboratory. Mm. And that started about four years into our tenure as a nonprofit. And then in 2009, I moved back to Seattle, and the organization was rebooted as uh, Splab, and so the literary became the focus, but yet we still do interviews, and then eventually put out the book American Prophets Interviews, 1994 to 2012, uh, in time for our 25th anniversary. 
And then we donated all of our original archives uh, that were on reel to reel uh, or on CD to the White River Valley Museum in Auburn, who was pledged to um, catalog them and eventually preserve them. To preserve uh, decaying reel to reel, they have to bake them oh, really? in an hmm. oven at 100 degrees and then get the audio off and then put it uh, as a digital file. Oh, wow. So hopefully someday they'll have the funds to be able to get those because there's some really interesting content in there and it's it's in their hands now and they've got it in a con- climate controlled <laughs> environment uh-huh. so so splab continues now standing for seattle poetics lab and we're in the middle of a 20 year well not in the middle 8 year 8 of a bioregional cultural investigation of the bioregion known as cascadia so getting to know this place where we live mm-hmm. and what makes it tick and what the genius loci is um, uh, through poetry festivals, through interviews, through my own writing and uh, through the postcard fest. Mm-hmm. Popo. Uh, well, I want to get to the bioregion a little bit, but, uh, but first I, I think I love the Splab's um, um, mission statement, which is to challenge the conventions surrounding art and its influence, human consciousness and the role of the artist in the community. I think is if I, read my own writing, right? Um, what is the role of the artist in the community? Well, I think it's the role of the prophet. By the way, I think you're reading the old mission because oh, on February February 7th and 8th, we renewed the mission and, and um, chopped it down and revised it. Um, but still, um, the, the, the old mission, I'm still in sync with it. And I think the role of the artist is to, obviously to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. I mean, this makes this, the position of Poet Laureate a very dicey one mm-hmm. because, um, you know, and I just did an interview with Chin Yi Pai, who was Poet Laureate of Redmond, and there was a hate crime in Redmond where this black woman had a used clothing store and some guy dropped off a KKK robe, and it's obviously a hate crime. And uh, a poem that Chin Yi Pai wrote about that as a way of uh, healing and bringing attention to it, um, the city said, uh, maybe you leave that one out, mm-hmm. you know. Because it brings, you know, it's not good PR for the city of Redmond. Um, but it says a lot about a community that's willing to censor uh, something like that. And it says a lot about a community where something like that can happen. Although I guess that can happen just about anywhere. We're more surprised when it happens in a, in a liberal place like Seattle. So so speaking truth to power and also that prophetic kind of impulse. I mean, that's, that's what we need more than anything mm-hmm. else now. We don't need rhetorical poetry. There is so much rhetoric. We're drowning in rhetoric. We're sickened by it. I couldn't even take Bernie Sanders' <laughs> rhetoric, even though I, I voted for him in the primary. I can't take that kind of rhetoric because it's like it's numbing to the soul to hear mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. So um, something that's uh, anti-rhetorical or deeper mm-hmm. than rhetoric, something that speaks truth to power – something that's prophetic. And how do you get in touch with the prophetic voice? You have an inner life and you're connected to something larger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's easier said than done. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to make that distinction. I always felt like one definition of poetry or maybe just art in general is that it's the opposite of propaganda because propaganda is something that you know that you're trying to disseminate, whereas um, you know, art is something that you don't know and you're trying to investigate. Um, and, and one of the things that's, that I've seen, I don't know if you've noticed, um, but poetry has gotten much more political over the last decade. It might be, I wonder if it's the influence of slam, maybe, which was always sort of that kind of, um, 
you know, propaganda for, for maybe good values. It's not about whether or not they're the right values. Like you mentioned, Bernie Sanders is obnoxious too when he, when he gets into that propagandistic phase, even though you support what he says. Um, and I feel like that's really spread through poetry where there's a lot of political poetry, but it's sort of messaging rather than um, investigation. Do you feel like that's the case right now? Yes, I don't think people know the difference. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of poetry. You know, I remember when... Um, Nikki Giovanni responded to the massacre at Virginia Tech, where I think 33 people were killed in one day. And, uh, you know, it was a horrific, horrific uh, event. And uh, she came on and had this, uh, uh, she was part of the, you know, uh, event that they did to heal from that and, uh, you know, assume the role of the poet. Cause she, she taught there mm-hmm. and she read this poem and the crowd was into it and, it was, uh, you know, it, you wanted to watch it. I watched it a couple of times, but there was something about it that I'm like, wait a minute, I'm missing something here. And I showed it to George Bowering, and he said, well, it's rhetoric, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, very simply. And, you know, um, rhetoric, uh, sentimentality, cliche, these things are easy things to do, to put them into a rhythmic mode, a little bit harder, mm-hmm. but still – it's really harder to write something that in 200 years is still going to be true, um, is going to be uh, something that people go to over and over again. Um, you know, to, to read Walt Whitman, if you haven't read Song of Myself, to go back to that, mm-hmm. um, it's just stunning and hyper-specific. I mean, there's not too many uses of the word quahog or aflatus <laughs> in poetry, and yet, and yet Whitman was there, and it sounds as fresh as it did in many ways as the day it was written. So, um, you know, a Whitmanic gesture, uh, a gesture like Lorene Niedeker, like uh, Emily Dickinson. These are, I think, what the poet's role is. And so not so much what's going to go over right now, but in touch with something that's eternal, Mm -hmm. that's going to sound fresh 200 years from now. Yeah, yeah. I think I feel like there's um, a really important distinction between it was just what my takeaway from from doing we did a slam issue all the way back in like 2007 maybe um but 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 there's such a big difference between i i feel like the public maybe doesn't understand the difference between using poetic devices versus the pursuit of art in poetry and 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 in a lot of cases i feel like um in a slam it's more like a religious sermon or something where the where what's going on is consciousness is being sort of focused on one point. And so there's a mass of people that are sort of being guided in the same direction. Whereas art instead is sort of expanding human consciousness itself on an individual level. And so when you read a poem that's doing that or looking at a painting that does that, you're sort of being given a map by the artist to go to that new place the artist um, managed to get to through some kind of meditative act of creation. and it just feels like it's it's not even the same thing, um, you know. They have elements in common, but they're completely different, um, just in, in the direction of what they're doing. We went to the national. We t- took a team of poets to the National Teen Poetry Slam Championships in 2000 in San Francisco, and my partner at the time was feeling very uneasy with that kind of focusing on one point, and um, she her feeling was that she was it was kind of reminiscent of uh, 
being at a at a, a Nazi rally or something, because there was a mob mentality mm-hmm. that if you disagreed with it, you know, you were going to be looked at with suspicion. So um, I think that uh, that art, when it's propagandistic, um, and and uh, you get into notions of demagoguery, mm-hmm. and then you get into how this uh, current occupant of the White House uh, maintains power by um, appealing to the very basest level mm-hmm. of human being. I'm not saying that slam poetry does appeal to the base level, but I see some of the similarities, mm-hmm. and that's not what I want from art. And I was involved in the slam for a little while, but I saw it limiting. I also saw how people were writing for the audience rather than for their deep selves. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want this to happen to me. So I have to get out of this. And I think it's like in jazz, you know, if you come to jazz through hearing Jeff Beck covers of Charles Mingus, and then before long you're listening to Mingus and before long you're listening to the art ensemble of Chicago or, uh, you know, the AACM or that kind of stuff then maybe that um, more superficial stuff mm-hmm. has done its job. You know, you start out with Instagram poetry or Rupi Kaur, and then you go on to Mary Oliver. And then, you know, before long, you really want more of that really kind of deep gesture. And you're reading Nate Mackey or Fred Moten or Paul Salon or Brenda Hillman or Lorene Niedeker or any number of people who are not easily digestible on the first bite. But you have to go back to five or ten times. And the funny thing is, with that kind of art, you can go back several times. And if you go back ten years from now, you'll get more out of it because you're a different person mm-hmm. when you come to it. So it's very myriad-minded. Yeah, I feel like um, how I conceptualize that distinction is um, through the, the idea of, um, of pixelation and resolution, like screen resolution. And um, I feel like like um, that kind of art, which I call propaganda art or something like that, you know, it, it's, it's bringing coherence but what art's doing, that the kind of art that we're sort of talking about here, which I would call organic poetry, I think that fits, is increasing the resolution of your worldview. And so if you have, like if you're born, you only have two pixels, say. You have yum and yuck. You know what you like and what you don't. You know mother, not mother. It divides into four. You know, it eventually divides into 64, 256. And as you go through life, it increases the resolution where there's those interstices between pixels of, of your map of the universe, Right. And so what poetry does is takes a pixel and carve it up into more pixels so you have an even higher resolution image. And that, I think that's the, the pursuit of the artist is to increase the resolution of our understanding of human experience, um, and which is why I, I so, you know, it, it's not just um, slam. I don't want to pick on slam a lot. You know, it, it, the, the poetry is all over the place. Like I, we do poets respond and rattle. Um, and I get this stuff, you know, 100 poems a week, where it's all just promoting my political perspective, which I had when I started from. Um, and, and, you know, I know you're a very politically minded person. And, you, and how do you approach poetry in a way that engages politically, but is still poetry? That's a tough, a tough thing to do. It's, it's, it's very hard to do. Um, because, uh, you know, I've, I've, I have a poem that's, um, was written from a news story that I think was written on a Saturday. So I missed your deadline for Poets Respond. And it ended up being published in Cascadia Magazine and became the single most uh, popular thing on that website for a year. And it was Elegy for Taliqua's Calf. And, you know, it's there's 
rhetoric in it. Mm-hmm. It's didactic. There, there's even things that uh, veer on cliche. And when I wrote it, I thought, you know, is this a poem or is this, um, you know, is this rhetoric? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been published in an anthology. It gave the magazine the most hits in its existence and, uh, you know, got a lot of attention. Um, I showed it to Jose Cozer and they're like, nah, <laughs> up until this point, it's good. Then after that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a daily thing to try and figure out how do you address the politics of something without the the rhetoric, without the preachiness. And, um, you know, my background was a journalist, you know, so it's hard not to try and tell the story exactly what it is. I think with some of the techniques that I've developed and some of the sources that have interested me, the neo-Baroco tradition in Latin American literature as practiced by Jose Cozer and Jose Lesama Lima and others, that has allowed me to be more free to have a more accurate transcript of my, the way my mind really works. So using mm-hmm. busted syntax or parataxis, abrupt subject changes, parenthetical thoughts, um, these kinds of things, um, to me, which are a more true transcript of how my mind works, but are not how most writing works in this country. Mm-hmm. Most writing is, you know, you are writing for an audience and an audience has to get X out of your thing. And I don't think the best poetry does that mm-hmm. because in 20 years, the X that they have to get out of it is Y or Z or something <laughs> else. So, I, I, you know, if, you, if you're doing, you know, George Bowring said something about happiness. It was published in the Vancouver Sun. And he says, you know, if you listen really hard when a poem is coming on, quit your usual gabbing and listen. Um, you'll have a happy experience because you'll get to be the first reader of the poem. Mm-hmm. And when he says it like that, it's like people would say, no, no, wait a minute. You're the writer of the poem. Somebody else is the first reader, like your partner or the, the mailman or your neighbor down the hall. But no, because you're engaged in the practice of outside, you're um, essentially channeling these forces that are larger than you, that have numerous sources that I don't think we'll ever fully uh, understand. And and um, you get to be the first person who sees that when it's finished and go, wow, that came through me in a way, but a sense that you are only the caretaker of it, that it was a gift to you as it is a gift to other people and is consistent with Lewis Hyde's notion of the gift economy. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, the the poet or the artist as a conduit for something greater. And that's that's something that I've tried to sort of figure out what is actually going on. Because if you talk to, you know, I've talked to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of poets in sort of an interview setting. And a lot of them have this sense that that when you get into the writing of the poem, um, it's not them writing, that, it, that it's a, um, you know, they're the conduit of something higher. Um, and I know you, you've interviewed um, and talked a little bit about Rupert Sheldrake. Um, and so that's sort of the, the field consciousness kind of ideas. I don't know if you know about the Global Consciousness Project and those. Are you familiar with that, with the random number generators all over the world? Um, no. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I don't think we'd include this in the print interview, but um, but but what someone, what, I can't remember his name, but he set up all these random number generators, a network of them around the world. Uh, it's at newsphere, noosphere.princeton.edu is where it's, it's all archived. And on events, uh, on days where there are events, um, where some kind of like national or international attention is focused on something, um, 
the randomness um, differs from chance. So that the random numbers get less random. Like there's some kind of effect on the nature of reality. Similar to like Sheldrake's with his, um, you know, what do the dogs sense when their owners come home? You know, like there's some kind of fabric. Morphic resonance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And so experimentally, this this new sphere project showed that um, empirically that on a day like 9-11 or um, a day like where the, the tsunami, the Sumatra earthquake or, or the Japanese tsunami, um, you know, somehow something shifts in like the fabric of reality in the field of consciousness that we're all generating or something. Um, and I feel like when, when an artist hits on something that, that, that resonates, I mean, we use the word resonate, right? <laughs> and, and they hit on something for them that then they transfer to the reader. Um, what, what do you think, having interviewed all these people and, and, um, and thought about it a lot, what do you think is going on, like on an actual like physics level or like, like what, what is the nature of, of being and, and how are we tapping, what are we tapping into? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the term newosphere comes from Teilhard uh, uh, de Chardin, Teilhard de Chardin, the, the Catholic, was he a Jesuit? I think he was a Jesuit. Um, so he, his concept of this uh, thing that we're all connected to is the newosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, John Hogue called it the Buddha field. Uh, Carl Jung called it the collective unconscious. So we're tied, uh, we're connected to others uh, without question, whether we want to recognize that or not, whether the current science we have, materialistic science, recognizes that or not. We are one unit. This is a spaceship uh, in Bucky Fuller's uh, terminology. So um, we are interconnected and the sooner that we every individual realizes that they are connected to all living things everywhere um the sooner that they will be healthy happy human beings because it's it's something that we have to learn one of the things of being a human is you have to learn that something that affects me is affecting someone ten thousand miles away Mm -hmm. rupert sheldrake whom i had the chance to interview twice one of them with that book about uh, owners or animals who know when their owners are coming home and other strange powers, no, dogs who know when their owners are coming home and other strange powers of animals, he used it to foster his notion of morphogenetic fields. Mm-hmm. So this, um, this field of information that can be tapped into, for example, how does a school of fish know when there's a predator to go out at the same moment? You know, it's not like they're looking at the third base coach and he's going like this or they hear two bangs mm-hmm. on the can and know that a curveball is coming <laughs> if they're on the Astros. You know, they don't have those, but they have some kind of group intelligence that they're all tapped into. Mm-hmm. Or there's a great video online called Starlings at Otmore. And to see these thousands of starlings and they never hit each other and one drop out of the sky. How do they know? Sheldrake's notion is that they're connected through morphogenetic fields or morphic fields. And I think there's a lot to be said uh, about that. And the fact that we are still animals, you know, mm-hmm. McClure said any man who doesn't realize he's an animal is less than one. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing uh, about that. Um, then there was another part of your question to set that up that I don't remember exactly, but I, I think that, um, you know, the resonances that we can tap into are numerous. Um, Chief Seattle said in his famous speech that was either, you know, a, a product of a translator's imagination or has something to do with Chief Seattle. Regardless, we know it is Chief Seattle's famous speech, 
And, you know, the, the, the ancestors, his ancestors are down there below us, you know, uh, in this place uh, that we call Seattle, which was named after him, Chief Siached, right? So are we tapping into the energies of the, of the indigenous people of this place? Are we tapping into the energies of our ancestors? Are we tapping into the fields left here by the poets who are alive or are dead, but whose work we've read and have influenced us mm -hmm. on some level? Are we tapped into Miles, the rhythms of Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Thelonious Monk and Fred Anderson and Carla Blay and any number of uh, the, uh, musicians that we may have listened to? I think all of these forces are somehow influencing the poem. And we never know at any given time, but we can give thanks for that. Mm -hmm. And we can, we can deepen the source material that prompts us to write in the first place. And I think when we do that, we get... Uh, a better picture of who our true selves are. And when we do that, it's a very satisfying moment as a poet, regardless whether the poem is published or 10 million people read it or, or you get $200 in the mail mm -hmm. from it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, um, one of the things I noticed you're, uh, you're doing is there's a Cascadian Zen conference. And I know the Zen, you know, the, the Zen word for that is Pratityasamutpada, which is the um, co-interdependently arising phenomena that, that is a, sort of the fundamental nature of the universe. Um, and so it's really interesting when I saw that, you know, because I know you're into this kind of thought, I, it was interesting to see that you're doing a, a Zen conference. Can you can you talk a little bit about what that's doing and, and why? We did that on the 14th and 15th of February, and that was in conjunction with Seattle U and a professor of philosophy there, Jason Wirth, and uh, Shinyi Pai, a local poet, and the woman I mentioned who was the Poet Laureate of Redmond, Washington, um, she helped organize the conference. And it was a look at um, what, and, and you know, when we use the term Zen, we wanted it to be a very open uh, phrase to indicate that the workings of one's inner life and some kind of discipline. So not everybody who attended had a practice of Zazen. I, for one, uh, sit on occasion, mm -hmm. But, but, but I poetry is your sitting, you know, so. That's that's one aspect of it. I also practice Latihan Kejuan of Subud, which is uh, uh, sort of a hard hard to call it a walking meditation, but something like that, very spontaneous thing. I also do yoga. I also draw a daily rune. I also pray every day. So I have many different um, things that I do that I wouldn't call Zen, but I think are sympathetic with a Zen impulse. So combine that inner life or some kind of practice that one has, self-building practice, along with life here. Um, looking out at Lake Washington and seeing a little bit of the foothills of the Cascades, the Issaquah Alps, uh, and seeing seagulls and coots and uh, the occasional heron. The osprey was here a couple of weeks ago, way early. The eagles are learning how to hunt coots, and we've never seen them get one. Sometimes we see an otter or a beaver in the lake. So this is different than what someone's going to see in Flagstaff, Arizona, or in Nashville, Tennessee. So what is it about this place that makes a uh, kind of Zen impulse different? And there were papers given and exercises done, and we're planning an anthology mm -hmm. called Cascadian Zen. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're working on uh, getting that into the world in about a year from now. And that's the current anthology project that I'm working on. Yeah, and um, I mean, you sort of touched on, on, upon it before, but um, one of the things you're really interested in is the Cascadian bioregion. And um, and I actually, I thought, uh, when we met, I mentioned, you know, when we met at that bar um, with Peter Monroe, um, maybe eight years ago or so, I don't know how long ago that was, um, you talked about the Cascadia 
and, and I thought about doing a Cascadian issue, and I thought maybe we'd be interviewing you for that issue. We ended up doing a postcard poems issue instead. But um, um, so, so what is the Cascadian bioregion for people who aren't familiar with that? And then um, what does it mean to you? Like, why are you so passionate about it? Mm-hmm. Well, a bioregion is, um, imagine if every country had its boundaries drawn by nature rather than white generals sometimes looking at a map. Mm -hmm. And if you think of nations as uh, having some similarity in terms of the plant and animal life and, of course, connecting watersheds, you would never cut through a watershed to create a nation, although we've done that with the 49th parallel and many of the other straight lines that go through the states, especially in the western United States. Colorado is a parallelogram, mm-hmm. as is uh, as is Wyoming. And, uh, you know, nature never works in straight lines. Anytime you see straight lines, you have to ask questions. So Cascadia as a bioregion was really fostered um, by David McCloskey, who also worked at Seattle University. And he taught sociology, and he's developed these maps that are just incredible, cascadia-institute.org. You can see his latest map. You can download it as a PDF, a small version, and you can buy it at the local map store here for 20 bucks. And and it's beautiful. It's evocative. And what it says to us, and and by the way, Cascadia starts um, at about Cape Mendocino, California, includes Eureka and Arcata, and that part of California, Mount Shasta, excludes a good good part of Oregon, which is part of the Great Basin, Mm -hmm. and includes... um, uh, all of the state of Washington, most of Idaho, western Montana, and British Columbia, west of the Continental Divide and the Panhandle of Alaska, going up to Mount Logan. So uh, is this salmon country, basically? I mean, that's a simple way of saying it, but that's something we have in common. The San Andreas Fault forms the southwestern um, sort of boundary of it, and then the fault goes 1,000 miles due west. And McCloskey includes that on his map, even though that's part of the sea and map makers were saying, you know, that's offshore. You don't need to be concerned about that. But he felt it was important Mm -hmm. to show those offshore things and how they affect the consciousness. And I think the important thing about bioregionalism, Peter Berg said that the product of the culture that gave us nation states, the product of this kind of culture is garbage. Mm -hmm. Even durable goods, wash machines and dryers and cars they end up you know on the front lawn of uh, the, the the hillbillies you know the hillbillies uh, lot and uh, so that's what the product is and not just the product of the things of this culture but also the culture itself cultural garbage i think if we look at our media right now we can state without any uncertainty that this is garbage <laughs> coming out our politics are garbage so He said that one has to think bioregionally and connect to the place in which they live, which can be broken down by bioregion or, uh, you know, places that share affinities with plant and animal life and watersheds. Mm -hmm. And so um, if I look at myself first as a Cascadian, maybe then after that as a U.S. American, that doesn't mean I don't pay my taxes. That doesn't mean I don't carry a passport. I do those things. I obey the laws except for a lot of traffic laws, (laughs) because I grew up in Chicago and I drive like that. Um, But if one considers himself Cascadian before anything else, then the whole reality begins to shift. It's like writing that 
17-syllable poem every day. You're training yourself to realize that whatever happens in Washington, D.C. or Ottawa, Canada is not as valid. I mean, it will affect me. If Bernie were to get in and have Medicare for All and student loan amnesty and a Green New Deal, I'm convinced my life would be better. But in the meantime, there are a lot of things I can do to insulate myself from the vagaries of what happens mm -hmm. in the in the capitals 3,000 miles away and live a happy, productive life that is tied to the natural seasons here and that's tied to place. And I'll leave you with a Dogen quote about that. Uh, when, when one finds the place where they are, practice occurs. When you find the place where you are, practice occurs. Something like that. Um, the notion that you really can't do any work on yourself until you realize where you are in space and time mm -hmm. and go from there. How big of a... Um sort of a movement is it do you have any sense of that like how like what per, you know how many people you know, i've seen it outside of sort of your network of, of um, literary sort of circles i've seen a lot of references to cascadia since you since you brought it up all those years ago uh, even people talking about seceding or forming your own states and things like that um how widespread of a movement is that uh you know it's hard to say um you see a lot of cascadian flags um, I got the Cascadia flag sticker on the back of my car. In fact, I have a postcard right over here. I can get it. I keep it in the window so people can see. Hang on just okay. a second. It's the Doug Fir. Um, this is the famous uh, flag of Cascadia with the blue stripe, the Doug Fir in the middle, and the green stripe. Mm -hmm. um, my friend, the artist, uh, Ian Boyden, says that tree looks very lonely. <laughs> and it's likely that they chopped down all the other trees around it, and it's not a good thing. So, so I started creating postcards, and then uh, I've got at least one painting where I do these collages. And so I've got three trees in this one. So uh, you can see I'm, i got to work on my Doug fir. It's not as good as, as that Doug fir, but um, I'm having fun with the collages. And I've done probably about 150 postcards that are variations on the Cascadia flag like uh, Jasper John's variations on the U.S. American flag. Mm -hmm. So let me uh, kind of start rounding out the interview here. Um, um, what is your sense of where poetry is moving forward? And um, like, what, what do you think its place is as we sort of progress through the 21st century? Um, do you see do you see um, sort of a revival of poetry as we sort of get carpeted over by commercialism and, and um, those those parallel lines you were talking about um, and in the media? Do you, do you think do you think there's a renaissance of poetry coming or already started or do you think um, we're sort of you know desperately clinging? Well, it's hard, it's hard to say, you know, I mean. Mellor May said poetry is the language for a state of crisis, and if we're not in crisis right now, I don't want to see what it looks like when it does hit, because it's, um, you know, it's may you live in interesting times is the, is the uh, Chinese curse, and we definitely live in interesting times right now. The, the very biosphere that sustains all human life is at risk, so it's a very exciting time to be alive, and I think the beautiful thing is for those who have genuine poetry in their lives, I think their lives are richer. They don't have to write it to be able to enjoy it. They can just um, try to read something, uh, and even if they don't understand, quote unquote, understand it. And I think that's the big bugaboo 
with poetry. It's like, well, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Well, it may not be important. There might be a line that just sounds so good. You never listen to jazz and say, well, I don't get it. You know, what is Miles saying here? You know, you just enjoy it. Like Duke Ellington said, if it sounds good, it is. So I think there's always going to be a place for a real poetry and a real use of language in that way. And despite all the, you know, thousands of MFA programs, which I think, you know, uh, some of them are doing very good work and some of them are just glutting the market with a lot of mediocre stuff. Uh-huh. So it takes time to filter this out. And so that poetry, which comes from a practitioner who has a deep inner life, um, these are kinds of shamanic tools. These are tools for transformation. And we all should be interested in our own transformation, in our own individuation, in our own um, effort to become as human as possible. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't, we get sick. Um, and, you know, we all get sick. And um, it's interesting to find the ways that those sicknesses take shape. And they're always tied, I think, to our own um, thought patterns, which are not aligned with the divine. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm going through right now is a huge wake up call for me. And um, it's difficult and a little scary. But on the other hand, it's reassuring to see what the shadow issues are and how they're in my control to be able to finesse them and change them and to uh, be a more forgiving person and a less judgmental person and uh, have some more years of living. Poets don't peak if they do it right until they're in their 80s. I mean, you know, you got to give up swimming when you're 25 or 26, but uh, you can play golf into your 60s and 70s and still be okay. You might have to hit off the ladies' tees, you know. But poetry, you could be in your 80s and be at the peak of your power. And, you know, to read some of the latest work that Michael McClure has written, uh, Mule Cake Blues, is, and to, you know, to see George Bowering's uh, latest book of essays, you know, I mean, these guys are in their 80s and doing this kind of work. It's, uh, it's a really beautiful thing. So regardless of how the culture responds to it, the culture needs it. Mm-hmm. And there will be people who do seek it out because they have a sense that there's something deeper than, you know, uh, Costco flyers mm-hmm. or whatever other kind of advertising gets stuck in their head. Uh, so um, I don't know how the culture is going to respond to it. I am so out of touch with mainstream culture that most pop culture references, I have to ask somebody because I just am just not tuned to it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a good person to ask about that. Well, do you think um, Do you think it's possible, um, I guess you should say, do you think the, the writing, the practice of writing poetry is inexplicably, or inex, inextractably um, in, intertwined with um, the poetry process itself? Because one of the things that I always find interesting is that reading a poem that moves you and sort of gets you to sort of disintegrate and, and have that sort of coherence with the field or whatever you want to talk about it, um, that really makes you want to write your own poems. And so what happens is the more people who read poems, um, the more people who write poems, which is why I love the way that the postcard project is both a, a receiving and a giving. Um, do you think that's the, the future for, for poetry is to, to like sort of expanding the postcard concept and more people writing as well as reading? 
Well, we would love that, you know. And the funny thing is about some people who just pick up poetry for the first time, they're better than some people who have MFAs and have been given this kind of uh, teaching that is teaching them how to be mediocre. And, you know, uh, sometimes no training in poetry can uh, can give you poems that are a lot more compelling. But I also think we can take that poetry impulse and put it into cooking a meal. We can put it into making love. We can put it into whatever act we do, and it could be more conscious, and it could be more creative, and it could be more spontaneous, and it could be more tied to uh, an impulse that's bigger than ourselves. And so you know, they call it poetry in motion. You know, I think we can do it when we're driving uh, to be more considerate, to be more artful, and to be more efficient. So, you know, we can apply those same instincts we might learn in poetry to any creative act we do mm -hmm. in our life. Have you ever cooked rice without measuring it? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I've learned a way where you, you know, you just, I've done it for 20 years. My uh, partner couldn't believe it. No, 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 <laughs> you got to measure. It's like, no, 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 watch. And she's like, yes. Uh, Every now and then it doesn't come out right and I got to add a little more water or whatever. But, you know, you, you say that to someone who's a formalist and it's like, no, no, you have to take two cups of water and one cup of rice and do that. It's like, well, no, you don't have to. Sometimes you can just eyeball it. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we learn how to eyeball certain things in our life, when we learn how to act on that spontaneous impulse, I think we're more in touch with the creative force and that makes our lives happier. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems to me like the creative force is um, the dissolution of self. And, and so when you, you know, you, you mentioned formalists, but I think what formalists do is that's their access into no self, into no time, where they are so focused on the rhyme and meter that they allow the, their, conscious, um, their conscious forcefulness to, to back away so they can, they can be no self and, and merge with whatever weird forces we were talking about earlier and, and create something new. Which is what you can do if you're an athlete. That's the zone. Um, you know, it's the, you know, forgetting that there's anybody except for the pitcher and the ball and there's one hand, you know, as the ball comes in and you can even see the spin because your consciousness slows down so much. Um, you know, there's so many aspects of human nature that, that are that sense of, of my own consciousness dissolving away. And it's such a beautiful experience. Um, and artists, are, you know, write down and make a map of that experience. But um but we can, I think, um, experience that everywhere, and, and it's something that it's not valued. What was the phrase you used? Under, uh, undercommons. Undercommons. Yeah, like it's really the undercommons is what what all the stuff is that we're talking about. Yeah, the undercommons. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I'm not a formalist, and you know, I I think that it's okay to have. Uh, there's nothing wrong with formalism. It's not my thing. It's not my preference. Um, you know, Duncan said that if you're writing in the field, here's to bring up the word field again, mm -hmm. that um, aspects of IMs and trochees can come in there, uh, but they're not required and there's not a formula per se, or the formula is being discovered in the moment of composition. To me, that's the more, uh, the most satisfying gesture. But, you know, any way that people can get in touch with their deeper selves, if it takes a form to do that, well, more power to you. Um, that's not how I've come to it. Mm -hmm. And so that's not my preference, but I'm only one person and only speaking for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so now that you have, uh, now that the Cascadian Zen conference is over, we know the postcard poems are coming up. Um, are there any other projects you have going on or what, what are you looking at doing moving forward? I've been writing a series of prose sonnets uh, since the beginning of 2019. Um, I've got several books of unpublished poems. Uh, one has been submitted to a contest, um, a, a shorter book of the prose 
poems, prose sonnets, has been uh, uh, put into a contest for Floating Bridge Press, local press that has an annual chapbook award. I write the American Sense every day. Um, at the end of this year, it'll be 20 years of doing that once a day. So the book, American Senses, is going to come out in a new version uh, with 20 years of work. Um, my first book of poems, A Time Before Slaughter, which is sort of like Patterson, William Carlos Williams, or the Maximus poems, Charles Olson. It looked at the history of small town Auburn, Washington, which was originally founded as the town of Slaughter. And for its 10th anniversary this year, we're putting out uh, an, an expanded edition, which will include uh, a whole other book, which is called Pig War and Other Songs of Cascadia. So that Cascadian impulse uh, will become uh, a lot more directly articulated when this book comes out, I have a launch April 11 at Open Books, the all poetry bookstore in Seattle, and uh, you know that uh, that poem continues in one way or another. Uh, right now, I'm kind of focused on the prose sonnets, but um, there are other chapters of this Cascadian this poem that serial poem that reenacts the history of Cascadia is how I call it. Um, that is not over by any means. Although I think if the book's going to be 335 pages. You probably don't want to make it any bigger. You probably want to start another book. And so I think that if I write another book about that size in the rest of the time I have left, which probably would coincide with the end of our 20-year Cascadia Bioregional Cultural Investigation, that's probably good timing. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's nice to have residencies. I did a residency at the lake where a lot of that writing came through, a residency at um, the Friday Harbor Labs on San Juan Island through the Whiteley Center uh, at Doe Bay. And um, and also at um, in Wisconsin at Right on Door County and another residency coming up there. So I'm grateful these, for these places that have writers residencies. I do a lot of writing at home, but it's nice to get away and be focused monk like on the project at hand. I also would like to have more books of interviews come out. They're expensive to transcribe and then edit and then publish. So, um, you know, American Prophets got out and it was a lot of work oh, on yeah. that. But a book, Cascadian Prophets. Um, in fact, I'm pitching that to a publisher later this month. So I could see several more books of interviews come out and the serial poem and the American Senses and a few other of these manuscripts. A book of postcard poems uh, being published by uh, Thibaut Bach mm. Publishers, which are in your part yeah, of the world. Mm -hmm. So um, these are some of the projects that are going on now in addition to the annual uh, Cascadia Poetry Fest. And Popo, a rebranding of Popo. To call it Popo, to give it a new website, popo.cards, ah, oddly uh -huh. enough, <laughs> and to try and get 10,000 people mm -hmm. to do that fest. We'd love to to advertise and rattle to get people to join it. So I do want to talk to you about doing that. Well, we actually don't advertise, but uh, hopefully the, the idea is um, that this uh, interview and, and issue becomes an advertisement. You know, a whole issue is kind of a half advertisement. So I really hope people um, participate. And everybody who's heard about it, um, it really is enthusiastic about the idea. It seems like a lot of fun. It's one of those things that I think a lot of people, you know, the idea is fun and you really want to do it. There are probably 10,000 people who want to do it. And then when it comes down to it, you sort of get cold feet because of how much time you imagine it would take. But but maybe hearing this interview and, and realizing that it's how important spontaneous composition is and how you're not supposed to take a lot of time, um, maybe that'll encourage people to do it. But it'd be really great if, you know, I'd love it. I want a world where as many people, you know, the, when we interviewed Richard Gilbert, um, 
the haiku scholar uh, for our Japanese forms issue, he described in detail how how haiku functions in Japanese society, um, especially for older older people. But it's something that people just do, and it enriches their lives. And and half you know, like I think the third of the population writes haiku as a form of of enriching your life. And I'd love to see that happen here. Um, and I think the postcard poems project is a great a great idea for for bringing that about or, or bringing it more to the fore. So thank you for doing it. Thanks for your support and for all you do for poetry and for taking time to look at my materials before we did this and for your interest in my work. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Have a great have a great day, Paul, and I'll talk to you later. Okay, we're back. Well, I hope you enjoyed that wonderful interview, and we can hear some poems um, that were referred to. We talked a lot about organic poetry. Um, talked about Paul's methods for writing, his American sentences. Um, so, Paul, let's hear some of that. What do you want to start with first? Well, I'd like to talk about A Time Before Slaughter. Um, that was my first book of poems, and Slaughter was the original name of Auburn, Washington. Well, not not the original name. There were aboriginal names, indigenous names, but when it became a town, it was founded as Slaughter, and they realized that might not be good for tourism, so they changed it to Auburn. But with a, a town la- name like Slaughter and a river named Stuck, um, I was already off and running and reading people like William Carlos Williams, Patterson, and Charles Olson, the Maximus poems. And to look at American history through the specific and particular history of a small town, the town in which I lived for 17 years, six months, and two days, I thought, why not do this? And Joanne Kiger, who visited our splab in Auburn, which at the time was the spoken word lab, she said, it sounds like you're doing a Patterson for slaughter. You should do that. And I was up and running. And this is the first poem from that sequence before even Joanne mentioned this, but I was already tracking the history of the place in which I lived. And Frank Natsuhara lived in Auburn his whole life, except for the time that he was incarcerated in a concentration camp, a relocation camp during World War II because he was of Japanese descent. So this is Elegy for Frank. And there's a reference to an African proverb that says, when an elder dies, it's like a library burns to the ground. So you hear an allusion to that in Elegy for Frank from A Time Before Slaughter. The train stopped in Slaughter one more time last week. Frank Natsuhara punched ticket, memory in Doppler rhythm and train horns of one last goodbye. Another library, now Valley Loam. How did they save the store? How did it feel, prisoner of race? How the barbed wire humiliation? Oh, Frank Natsuhara, how will they remember you in this, your home, this big valley? Plum petals sailing in a spring gust, juice from strawberry dripping from chin. Very nice. Thanks so much, Paul. That was um, Elegy for Frank. Um, and it, it's really cool to hear uh, you read for the first time, actually. And um, and I, when we did the interview, I didn't, um, I, I don't think you sent a copy of this book, did you? So I think I haven't actually read it. Um, I, I got your other books. Um, so it's really cool to hear these poems. Um, and you have another one from this series, too, right? Um, there's a there's a later one from the Pig War. So after I wrote A Time Before Slaughter, um, I realized what I was doing was a serial poem. And the history was not just about this town of Auburn, Washington, the former slaughter, but all of Cascadia. And I started 
the 20-year bioregional cultural investigation, which is being done through festivals, Cascadia Poetry Festival, through um, interviews. I have a, a manuscript I'm working on called Cascadian Prophets. And, um, and then through the historical investigation of the Pig War, which was a boundary dispute between the U.S. and what would become Canada before the Civil War. And uh, several San Juan Islands, these San Juan Islands, uh, became American territory only after 12 years of joint occupancy of the island by British and U.S. forces. And so um, I could read from that. I could also, you know, I'm also realizing there is a poem from uh, the slaughter book, the the poem that ends the slaughter book um, and that portion. So, you know what, I think I'm going to read that last poem from A Time Before Slaughter and then read the Pig War poem and read read them back to back. Yeah, that sounds great. This is um, uh, number 10 from Elegies for Slaughter? Elegies for Slaughter, yeah, number 10. Um, Written after the Duino Elegies and after George Barring's Carisdale Elegies, the great uh, BC poet who was the first parliamentary poet laureate of Canada. Elegies for Slaughter, 10. After summer rain, angels would trample the wet grounds outside the carnival of glands, and yet dead poets always get the last word. Perhaps time sweetens with each deeply felt elegy. We see their picture as if they'd live forever. The day before the times writes their obit. It is the rare July angled rain can eat northwest faces shudder what's left of the white blossoms who refuse to complain about their well-timed descent. Unlike slaughter the trees, the Nutka rose, wild ginger, sitka, columbine, dogwood, Indian paintbrush, the fireweed remain neutral. Hold, like Tahoma does, the resonance of every step and waits patient for us to honor our greed. Inside, in silence, except for Friday night car tires humming on wet road below the sound waves of earth cutting through space underneath the dimmest constellation and the sound of the lonely night's last freight train horn, dead poets pose as angels, send metaphors for your verse, Remind you the whole world's alive inside that green wheel spinning in your chest, making a mandala of spent matches from lit prayer candles and pink rose blossoms offered to the lady. You are only a reflection of a reflection of the skill your parents had in the lightning flash that became you and for which you yearn to return endlessly checking the weather forecast while the stuck river rolls beyond the spot of diversion. You get a hernia as your marriage falls apart, or your nose bleeds for recognition, but the grace-saving use the extraordinary patience of dead poets. Dead poets in the garden scaring raccoons. Dead poets animating the cat's eyes for a moment, moving molecules to drop white blossoms for your amusement. Dead poets caught in your throat in the fetal position, like latent antepasados turning the last blood fire burn into your richest, deepest song. Sunlight's headed south now, faster than the cat can comprehend, makes the tips of stuck waves more white, animates Coyote's smile, lubricates the stunts of stellar jays, keeps light shining on slaughter, not waiting for better weather. And a poet you knew will become that light, 
or that latent angel or that force moving molecules to amuse your evening walk faster than your aging synapses can flash across their gap. He who could live beyond the last parenthesis, she who could hold fire in her hand, he who makes better weather for those who honor their ancestral land, she who marks the Northwest July sun's closing arson orange and apricot rays in skin, blood fire, and melted wax. She who taps the never-ending flow can withstand every parlor trick slaughter could ever conjure with a rare commitment to every blossoming every species has ever known. Thanks, Paul. That was, um, uh, once again, the last poem in Allergies for Slaughter. And you can really feel the when you read, you feel the beat influence in your in your poetry, in, in this in this sequence anyway. Do you want to go to the the pig war poem that you had? Sure, clues from hell. Um, all uh, these are highborn. They're in another series called um, Highborn de la Serna. So each highborn, which is a Japanese form um, invented by Basho, of a prose sort of a poetic prose portion and a haiku like moment, or a couple of paragraphs of prose like uh, prose poetry, and then a haiku like moment. Um, are juxtaposed. So, uh, and all of them start with epigraphs from Ramon Gomez de la Serna, who was a contemporary and friend of Salvador Dali. This one, 97, clues from hell. And the epigraph from Ramon Gomez, smoke rises to heaven when it ought to descend to hell. And the heavens of your making a home, be it the rock or Kerladen, Woodtown or the lake, Kageon or Cloud Nine, slaughter, or a little corner of Hillman City survivable by pea patch. Make it with enough care to notice from the lichen to the day moon, from the library to the Japanese maple, from the giant sunflowers to the three steepled cedar points to better weather. In it, and in the chaos of the marked up books, the three-toed vase, the empty Otokoyama bottles in the recycle bin, clues. To sift through the wreckage one day, they'll want clues. Clues to how you ended up next to a fire, well-tended, and clues to the spiritual chase. Clues to the record and direction for future seekers, and clues to where you hid the Humboldt fog. Clues could hide right in front of you, as does the sponge plant by the duckweed drift which smears the morning lake. Clues of cigarette butts and grief. Old growth redwood, 800 years old, 300 feet tall, heard its share of prayers. They were always there, we'll say, prominent as miniature islands with salal, blue huckleberry, and dwarfed spruce, calm as the lake ripples made by a coot flock landing, subtle as the wood smoke rejecting hell in the making of its new home as it courts the morning Cascadia fog, sincere as autumn bouquets, sweet little nosegay-like for every dead stranger in the cemetery made with a spirit of great cobwebs of geese in the sky and mild-mannered hallucinations of reverse snow in September Olympic fireweed or the hush of dropping fir needles with each new exhale from Blue Glacier. So, stock up on cake mix and tequila, butter and turkey bacon, mangos y pan de banana, have handy jasmine rice and altar candles, fresh garlic and olive oil, cashew bits and blush wine, Wool socks and binoculars, photos of the loved ones and always the clue-enabling ancestors. 
decoding the sea and the heavens ain't for sissies. Lend a hand or stand back. Thanks so much, Paul. And that was uh, Clues from Hell from uh, the Pig Wars, or, or just Pig Wars. Pig War and Other Songs of Cascadia. And, and other Songs of Cascadia. And, and, and you, many quotes from uh, Morris Graves from his selected letters in that high one. Yeah, there, it's interesting. There's so much, you can tell there's so much detail and history in these poems that the first few shared here. Let me ask you about one thing. The, um, the, your use of the, the contracted, like, your and the with, um, what is the purpose of that? To me, it makes the poetry feel sort of more casual, but I don't really know what, I've never heard actually anybody talk about why they do that. So it, it sort of feels like maybe to me more immediate and more note-like. Um, and it sort of just adds that sort of subtle effect, but I don't know if that's what the intention is or not. So, so why do you choose to do that? Well, um, I am in such a hurry to track, track my thoughts when mm-hmm. I'm writing that to, to type W I T H just takes too long. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, it's a practice that I understand that, uh, I saw it through first through Olson, and I also saw it in Diane de Prima. So de Prima got it from Olson, who got it from Ezra Pound, who got it, I believe, from the journals of John Adams, actually. Mm-hmm. That's that's my understanding of, of the practice. So um, that's a pretty good lineage, I think. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. Um, okay, so we have two more poems, and they're kind of perfect. We needed to hit both a postcard poem, and then we have um, some American sentences. Um, do you want to do, do your postcard poem that you sent? Um, yeah, could you? You know, I didn't pull it up. On the, <laughs> it's it's a nine ten postcards from the pandemic. Right. So um, that's this from this year, and um, I've written at that point. I'd written nine hundred and ten different postcard poems through the fourteen years of the fest, and uh, this might this would be a good one to show folks if if it's going to be on the screen. Oh, these these are all on screen. They can read along with everyone. Excellent. So, and this one went to my friend Deborah Poe, and. Um, what I did was take a a quarter of a box that a bottle of Hakutsuru sake came in, <laughs> and, and I made a collage with stickers of foxes and prints and uh, uh, fish and other things. And all these poems this year I'm calling Poems from the Pandemic. This one is simply entitled Cascadian Zen, and it starts with a Michael McClure epigraph. You know, he died in May, so this was still when he was very much on my mind, as he is every day. But his from his uh, touching the edge Dharma devotions from the Hummingbird Sangha, he said, <clears throat> all that is one subquark of reality on the big screen of the realms where I doubt at the center. And Cascadian Zen's summer lightning before summer scares the retriever of the last barista standing at the pandemic. I could riot about the would-be Codillo at the helm of this listing ship, but watch swallows almost crash into the lake. Same lake amplifies prayers for something beyond the normal dropped us here. And that a reference to Caudillo, uh, Kozer calls uh, President Trump el Caudillo analfabetico, which means in Spanish, the illiterate strongman. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, not bad. Um, okay, so let's hear a few of these American sentences too, which we talked about at length in the interview, um, and we and you quoted a few, but let let's hear some other ones. Man, these are pretty brutal. The ones I sent to you, um, 
you know, you always love to have people on this kind of uplifting <laughs> moment. <laughs> and here, I don't know, they're, 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 um, they were written for Cheap Wine and Poetry, which was a poetry series that happened for many years at the Richard Hugo House that Brian McGuigan uh, was involved in in putting on. And I, I think they'll probably resume it after the pandemic lockdown. But these are all about interpersonal relationships. So they were more written or, or, or selected for a drinking crowd. So, and, and I'll just date them. None of them have titles. They all have dates. February 9th, 2001, one small spat and you reconstruct front room into bedroom in exile. Same relationship two more times. July 18th, 01, no time for that, she says, releasing semi-erect morning penis. And that relationship ended in November. And here's here's an example of why uh, or some, some of what was going on at the time. November 8th, 2001, three days after the split, I revert to a diet of cake and meat. <laughs> Which is true. It was meatballs and uh, pound cake that I got after an election night party uh, when I was living alone and ha having just uh, broken up in that relationship or having having been dumped, I guess, is the way is the way it happened. Um, so not all the American census are funny. Some of them, like this from Jerusalem, June 6th, 02, in charred bus after suicide bomb, two corpses in one last embrace. And June 12th, 02, only thing wrong with love poems is that the poem outlasts the love. F April 9th, 03, maintenance man leaves a note, says, can't fix your faucet, its threads are striped. And uh, just a couple of others. Um, some of them are found poems. September 24th, headline says, body of missing Sarah Lee executive found frozen. Uh, my daughter, uh, my older daughter was, uh, let me see, she was, I think in sixth grade, maybe, maybe later than that. Maybe this was high school. No, this was high school. Definitely. November 15th, 06 words, Rebecca should not say in debate class, gangster, Jew and douchebag. And finally from January 5th, 09. So January is when, when we're cleaning out the fridge on this one. Would her Thanksgiving stuffing been this hard to flush had we eaten it? <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you about these American sentences, but we talked about it at length in the interview that everybody else just saw, so I won't. But um, but thanks so much for joining us again, Paul, and taking up a uh, second, second day of your time uh, to join us on the Rattlecast and do this interview and this wonderful issue, which um, everybody really appreciates. Um, the, what's the status of the um, August Postcard Poetry Festival? Because you did it early because of the pandemic. So I was a little confused about actually what's going on. The next time you're doing it is still going to be next August. Is that right? Yeah, the, the um, registration will open on September 1st for 2021, and the list will go out on the 4th of July. Come hell or high water, it's not going to be a long fest next year. It's going to be a normal-sized fest, 58 days. And, you know, people, um, you know, there was a lot of people who said they like having more time to write the 31 poems. So a few years ago, we started releasing the lists on the 4th of July. So it's really like all of summer here in Seattle, <laughs> six weeks or seven weeks <laughs> of summer. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a time of year. And so, yeah, the, the, um, popo.cards is the website. And just thank you for all you do and the integrity with which you do it. And, um, for, and standing up for what you believe and for taking great care with my work. I really feel that you paid attention, you did your homework, and uh, you presented it 
uh, in an honorable way. And that's a very rare thing. So I'm very grateful, Tim. Thank you. Oh, just my pleasure, too. And I should say for everyone at home, do enter the um, the August Postcard Poetry Project next year. It's so much fun. I've heard from so many people who just love doing it. And you could see, you could feel, just reading the submissions, the joy and the um, the appreciation that people had for the project. So I hope everybody watching here signs up starting September 1st, uh, popo.cards. Um, and for next summer, does the uh, August Postcard Poetry Project. Um, but thanks again for joining me, Paul. It's always a pleasure talking to you. I hope we can talk to you again soon. I'd like that. Thanks, too. Yeah, bye. Yes, yeah, so that was Paul E. Nelson. Um, and once again, his uh, website is uh, paulenelson.com. And it's spelled just like it sounds, P-A-U-L-E-N-E-L-S. O-N.com. Now, there is no um, open mic today because this is not live. We're recording this about a week ahead of time. Um, so next week's prompt um, will also be this week's prompt and um, for the open mic. And the prompt is, let me pull it up for you. Um, the prompt for next week, this will be August 25th, will be the prompt for next week is write a poem that is entirely dialogue. Um, and that's actually next week's prompt. I popped them in the wrong places. Write a poem that is entirely dialogue. It's the prompt for August 25th. Um, and once again, I'm going to share this on uh, August 8th, or August 11th, too. So you have two weeks to write these, really. And um, next week's guest on the Rattlecast will be uh, Amit Majmadar. Now, Amit is the um, poet laureate or former poet laureate of High Ohio. He's a physician. He wrote a great poem about um, doctors treating the coronavirus uh, during in the spring, and he has a poem in our fall issue that's uh, just about to release. His newest book from Knopf is What He Did in Solitary. It's a beautiful hardcover book I have right here. Really looking forward to talking to Amit and um, sharing uh, his poetry with you and, and seeing all the amazing things he's, he's been up to. Um, you know, he's only... 41 years old, I think, and he's already done so much. So um, really looking forward to talking to him. That'll be Tuesday, August 25th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. I will see you then. Hope you have a good rest of your week. Good night.